Harry Potter and Tom Riddle could have been the same person. And with the way Harry was raised by the Dursleys, it's almost surprising they aren't. Aside from being the hero of these books, you know, of course. But in this episode, we'll dive deep into Chapter 2 of Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone and examine Harry's character while keeping tabs on Dumbledore's master plan. I'm Zach, and welcome to Belated Binge, the Harry Potter podcast that doesn't take itself or the books too seriously. Probably because I didn't read them till I was a grown man. Now I'm here to give you a full-on rereading experience, even if you don't pick up a book, so we can celebrate what makes them great, speculate what's happening off the page, and call it on its BS where appropriate. The Belated Binge Podcast. Hi, I'm Zach, and welcome to the Belated Binge Podcast. I'll be your host throughout this journey as we revisit some of the most iconic series in recent memory that, aside from their impact on pop culture, have one other thing in common. I nearly missed out on them completely. When these series were at their peak of popularity, I thought I was either too cool, maybe I wasn't cool enough, maybe I wasn't nerdy enough, might have been too busy, uninterested, or otherwise just oblivious. Whatever excuse I gave myself, I was completely unengaged until many years later. That's the belated part. But now that I've come around, they become some of my favorite forms of entertainment. So now we're going to revisit them, re-binge them, if you will, episode by episode, chapter by chapter, moment by moment, taking a deep dive into world building, character development, plot holes, theories, themes, character motivations. We'll give away some meaningless awards. And we are continuing today with our reread of the Harry Potter series. That's the binge part. Together, they make the belated binge, and we've reached our second ever chapter episode of the Belated Binge podcast series. We're going to review chapter two of Sorcerer's Stone, The Vanishing Glass. But first, this episode will have spoilers as we dissect each chapter, character motivations, and key moments that impact the greater story. This podcast could also have a little bit of adult language from time to time, so we like to throw this disclaimer out there. With that being said, we're going to start this episode with our play-by-play. Play-by-play. The play-by-play segment that we do here on the Belated Binge podcast is where we, like a sports announcer would do, call the action from the chapter that we're reviewing here for this episode. A chapter recap, if you will. Last week, we discussed the chapter kind of at an existential level for chapter one. It was a thousand-foot view, if you will. And that's going to kind of vary from week to week. Some chapters, we're going to have a lot of little micro moments and details that we can discuss. Others, they're going to have not a ton of individual events happening, but a few that have a strong impact on the story. That was last week's chapter. Vernon goes to work. He complains. He goes home. He and Petunia complain. Dumbledore arrives outside, has a chat with a cat. Hagrid shows up, brings a baby. They leave it on the porch to be kidnapped. The end. Naturally, we discuss the chapter more as an introduction to the world, the wizarding world, the series, and Dumbledore master plan beginning. The more and more we prep for these future episodes that we're doing, the more and more I'm intrigued by how I'm seeing the story during this particular reread. I've listened to a lot of these types of podcasts on Harry Potter. Naturally, Dumbledore's discussed quite a bit. But normally it's through the lens of whether you agree, whether you disagree with the approach that he takes, or how soon he should have been telling Harry certain information throughout the books. All of these discussions are valid for sure, but I've not heard a ton of 
other places that go much deeper than that, that really analyze the plan that he has as it unfolds throughout the story, at least at a level of detail of a full, thorough reread of the books. And that's been really interesting for me this time through. It's really unfolding to me this time as Dumbledore versus Voldemort told through the eyes of Harry Potter. So I think you're going to hear quite a bit about the Puppet Master moving forward, if I can do a little bit of divination of what's to come uh, in episodes that we haven't even recorded yet. That would be my best guess, uh, if I'm honest. And this chapter is not really that different. We start Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass, with a time jump. Ten years after the opening of our book, and this is truly where the story begins, because this is when we jump into the perspective of our main character, Harry, our protagonist. The first thing we read about is how much the Dursleys suck. In case we forgot from the first chapter, or in case you somehow thought they might have some sort of revolutionary awakening where they realize how shitty they are as people and are taking Harry in, allowing them to kind of turn over a new leaf, and now they're volunteers in Habitats for Humanity in between delivering meals on wheels and rescuing strays from the animal shelter. No, they still suck. And we get an immediate and vivid flash that was actually depicted very well in the first movie where the scene kind of bursts from the scar on Harry's forehead and Petunia starts pounding on the cupboard door. Yes, I said cupboard door. For the past 10 years, we quickly realize he's been living through hell in a broom closet, which is definitely going to be the name of my next Wizard Rock album. I expect it to go Galleon. But it immediately puts you on his side, which is exactly where the author wants you to be. It's kind of hard to read a seven-book series through the perspective of a main character and hero that you can't stand, right? And we barely get into the chapter before I have to wonder, where's our guy Dumbledore? You know he's been working his master plan this whole decade. He's kept an eye on Harry. He knows the circumstances that he put him in. He says as much in book six when he's beating the Dursleys over the head with alcohol. But in this moment, upon a reread, we can fully analyze how Dumbledore has put the safety of not only Harry, but the entire wizarding world, the greater good, above the happiness of this child. Fair or unfair, for better or worse, he's chosen the tactic that he believes is going to bring the official vol fall <laughs> uh, rather, of Voldemort. And that means Harry has a miserable childhood. It's worth it if everyone in the world can avoid the misery of Voldemort rule, right? Remember, as we discussed on the last episode, by now, Dumbledore knows full well that Voldemort probably isn't dead. He knows he's still out there somewhere. You might ask, how? I might answer, did you listen to the last episode? If not, go back and take a gander, would you? But as a refresher, Dumbledore knows about the curse on the Defense Against the Dark Arts position. And at this point, for the last decade, he's continued to have to find a new replacement teacher, just as he has for several decades before. That curse is still alive, which means Voldemort likely is too. How might this story have changed if Dumbledore dropped Harry off at the Dursleys, and then the school year started, the same teacher for DADA as the previous year was there? I suppose it's possible the previous teacher's year may have been removed, you know, and ended in some way prior to the fateful night in Godric's Hollow. But what about the next year, or the one after that? If Dumbledore goes a whole year, or five, without his Defense Against the Dark Arts professor 
dying in a broom crash, contracting dragonpox, drinking poisonous mead, getting permanently transfigured into a gerbil, eloped, retired, or any other reason, horrible or otherwise, to not return to school, what if they just showed up for their second year on the job? None the wiser that Dumbledore never expected them to. Would that have been confirmation that Voldemort was actually dead for Dumbledore? Would Dumbledore have come and got Harry from the Dursleys and taken him out of his life of misery because the blood magic protection from Lily's sacrifice would no longer be needed? Or would he continue the course, keep going on his Grand Master plan just in case that the curse had broken because Voldemort's power had broken, but he could still be alive somewhere trying to come back? Could Harry had been moved back into the wizarding world? Who would take care of him? Hagrid? Dumbledore? The Weasleys, perhaps? We haven't even met them yet, but it's highly unlikely that Harry met them by accident. It's all an interesting thought, but we don't have that story. We have this one. And in this one, he doesn't come rescue Harry. And the Dursleys still suck. While Dudley's throwing a fit, they find out that Squibby Fig tripped over a nasal and broke her leg, so they don't have a babysitter for Harry while they take Dudley and his friend to the zoo. And the way they talk about him, as if he's nothing more than a stray dog with fleas and worms, is actually pretty infuriating. I had to wonder why they didn't just lock him in his cage, or cupboard, with a bowl of water and some kibble and call it a day. But then I realized, they aren't just going through this exercise because they hate Harry. Of course they do. But they hate him because they know what he is. They know that all these strange things that happen around him, the ones he's completely dumbfounded by and can't figure out himself, they know he's magical. And I don't think this panic to find a sitter is because they hate him. If it was, they probably would have just locked him in his cupboard. I think it's fear. They're afraid to leave him alone. They probably think he's just gonna magic his way out of the cupboard, escape to the wizarding world, and bring every wizard and witch with a hat to their living room to take over their cozy little mundane world. So rather than risk it, they take him with them. This is not the end of their suckiness. This whole chapter is a Dursley suckfest, just beating us over the head over and over and over again with how much they suck. They suck here, they suck before they leave for the zoo, with the thread about funny business. They suck on the way, shouting at him for dreaming about a flying motorcycle. They suck at the zoo when they try not to let him have ice cream. And did I mention that they suck? But despite how much they suck, and them being awful, Harry's stoked. This is the best time he's had in a long time. Let that sink in. This. This day. This day full of Dursley suckiness is a highlight morning for Harry. How bad are his normal days, let alone the bad ones? But the good day is going to come to a halt in the reptile house. Dudley and his friend are bored, and they act like bored, spoiled kids do. They suck. And Vernon pounds on the glass of a snake exhibit to try to appease them to no avail. This is when we get our first glimpse of something strange and magical happening to Harry in real time. He talks to a snake. Then, of course, Dudley has to suck and knock him down to get to the snake that's now awake, and the scene of the glass disappearing from them falling into the snake's jail cell is one small thing that I think the movie's got right. I love how the glass reappears, trapping Dudley in. It's played for laughs, but the whole idea is fine. So I imagine it that way in the book, too. It just 
I just enjoy it more than him falling in and getting wet and Petunia and Vernon freaking out and the manager coming out. I really like the idea of him getting in there and just getting trapped and pounding on the glass. I don't know why. Maybe I suck too. But then we find out Piers has witnessed Harry's parcel tongue chat. Although we don't know what that is yet, all hell is about to break loose. Before we get into that though, can we just imagine Piers watching Harry hiss at a snake who seems to be responding? Does that kid have nightmares when he gets home? What does that even look like? How does he not just absolutely freak out in this moment and go, that kid's hissing at that snake and that snake is hissing back? What the heck is happening? I don't know. Anyway, once they're back at the house, he's locked in his cupboard and we end the chapter on a sad trip in his mind where he reminisces about a life wishing to be rescued from the hell that he's in. Along with a little nod to his fame, a small bright spot before reminding us he's also bullied at school by the same person who's bullying him at home under the same parents that are bullying them every single day. It's truly no wonder one of the popular theories that went around for Harry Potter is one that we're not going to dive into with a theory corner this week, but if you're interested in bonus content like Theory Talk, or getting episodes early um, and other uh, bonus content that we're going to put on there, you can become a patron of the show for your exclusive access. But this is easily the saddest theory that came out when the you know uh, Harry Potter was wrapping up or making its rounds. I don't truly know exactly when this theory started making its rounds, but it's incredibly depressing. The gist of this theory is that the entire seven book series isn't real at all. The whole thing is just an elaborate alternate reality that Harry created in his head as a way to disassociate and cope with the trauma and abuse that he was facing on a daily basis from the Dursleys. Think about that. Now stop thinking about it because it's incredibly depressing and we cannot have this podcast end now because we have a seven series uh, journey to go on with this rebinge without the thought that none of it actually happened at all. So wipe it from your memory and let's move into our scouting report. Scouting report. The Scouting Report on the Belated Binge Podcast is where we take a a little bit more of a deep dive into a single character and highlight them in our chapter discussions. Um, Think of it as a scouting report in sports, where you start talking about uh, players' abilities and uh, tendencies and personalities and things like that. It's the same thing here uh, within the characters of the story and what we learn about them as characters and who they are as they're developing throughout the books and throughout the chapters. Uh, We will probably have multiple instances where we deep dive into the same character based on their behaviors and what we learn about them in the chapters moving along. So I guess I say that to say that this probably won't be the last time that we do a scouting report segment on Harry Potter. Obviously, he's going to be the focus for this week's because we officially meet him. He's the main protagonist of our story. Our narrative shifts to being from his perspective in chapter two 
of Sorcerer's Stone, the vanishing, the vanishing glass. And throughout this chapter, we learn a lot about him. Uh, we get his sense of humor, a little bit of his personality, a little bit of that snarkiness that kind of develops as the series goes along and that we, we generally, as a fandom, I think, love about Harry Potter. We get a glimpse into his character and truly where I want to take a, a little bit more uh, deeper view into that glimpse is through the conversation that he has with the snake at the zoo. What 11-year-old boy, who immediately after realizing he can talk to snakes, goes right into asking the snake about itself, its family, its captivity, its, you know, its day-to-day, -day, you know, how you doing, buddy? This shows an incredible amount of empathy right away as a human being, as a child, as a character, rather than being freaked out that I can talk to snakes, he immediately starts thinking about the snake as another living being, which again, at 11 years old, is an impressive bit of empathy. Juxtapose this with Dumbledore's memory of meeting Tom Riddle at the orphanage for the first time. He's bragging that he can talk to snakes, how he can make animals do what he wants. He's already said he can make people hurt. He's relishing in the power and in finding out that he's special, as he says it. This only reinforces his inflated sense of superiority. In this series, in my opinion, we get a bit heavy-handed with it uh, from time to time, but this series definitely likes to compare Harry with Tom Riddle. Both were orphaned as babies. Both were raised by people who either couldn't or just wouldn't give them the affection needed for infants to develop properly. Not only similar in upbringing, but also a bit similar in physical features, as well as each of them equally finding a home once they get to Hogwarts. Both of them would rather be at Hogwarts than literally anywhere else. They even stumble upon some of the same secrets of the castle. Think Chamber of Secrets. Think Room of Requirement. Think handling relics from the school's founders. Both of them have all of this in common. But these similarities are starkly contrasted by their differences at each of these phases. Take those three that I just mentioned. Harry first needs the rumor requirement to help his classmates learn defense against the dark arts. He also needs it to hide a book. He marvels at how many students before him had discovered the room. He's thinking about, first, his use of the rumor requirement to help other people. His finding of the room of hidden things version of the rumor requirement to how many came before him, how he's part of something bigger, how there are other people around that, you know, make up his being there and his, uh, his, his reason for being there. It's all stemmed either from needs of others or he is immediately drawn into the fact of how many people have needed this room prior to him. Whereas Tom Riddle, he wants to use the room to hide a bit of his soul, believing he, and only he, could ever be clever enough to find such a secret place in the castle. Tom Riddle finds the Chamber of Secrets in order to release a basilisk. He kills a muggle-born student with it. 
moaning myrtle. He revels in it. This is his birthright as a descendant of Salazar Slytherin himself. Harry finds the chamber in order to save Ginny Weasley, his best friend's sister, his future wife, and nearly sacrifices his own life in the process in order to protect others in the school from Ginny's near fate. Tom Riddle seeks Hogwarts founder's objects, Hufflepuff's cup, Slytherin's locket, the diadem of Ravenclaw, in order to encase shards of his soul into them to make him uh, invincible, unable to die, believing it will provide him extra superiority in his quest to conquer death, and also show and prove once and for all how special he is. Whereas Harry is presented Founder's objects in the same moment that he's trying to save Ginny and the school from the heir of Slytherin and the return of teenage Tom Riddle, the Sorting Hat, and Gryffindor's sword. In all of these cases, from finding the Chamber of Secrets itself and the intent in going into it, completely different people, completely different characters. This series is stood up on being about choices not abilities. And it's clear throughout the entire story, despite the fact that Harry's kind of forced into seeing the similarities, that there are just massive, massive gulfs of differences between these two characters who are our primary protagonist and antagonist throughout the series. When Harry learns he's a wizard, he says it's a mistake. He's normal. He can't be special. Tom Riddle takes it as confirmation that he always knew he was special. And when Tom Riddle learns that he can talk to snakes, he uses them to do his bidding. Harry asks it, how his day's going? Two completely different characters. One full of empathy and compassion, all the way back at 11 years old, despite an upbringing that could easily make a child awful. He could be full of hate. He could have easily gone the path of Tom Riddle who lacks empathy, is completely incapable of feeling emotions like love or companionship or truly giving a crap about any other human individual on the face of the planet if it doesn't serve his overall goals. Harry could have been like that. Nature versus nurture. Harry wasn't nurtured. He could have easily been an anti-hero. But we didn't get that story. We got this one. And in this story, Harry uses his upbringing, his lack of feeling emotional support, his lack of feeling loved, his lack of feeling like he belongs, and his lack of basic human needs where they're practically starving him and shoving in a, him into a broom cupboard. He uses that to reflect the importance of how other people are feeling when he meets them and that they could have things going on that he doesn't see. Nobody else in the world outside of that house, and apparently the wizarding world who's sending the letters uh, to him knows what he's going through at home. But he wants to know how other people are doing and what they're going through at home and how that's impacting them in their day. And he actually genuinely cares about other people. Again, two vastly different characters. One full of empathy, one lacking it entirely. Let's do some foreshadowing. Foreshadow. 
The foreshadow segment on the Belated Binge Podcast is where we take four moments that happen in each episode that foreshadow something to come later in the series. This is a great story for this type of a segment because there's Easter eggs all over the place throughout the entire thing. Uh, We could easily come up with more than four for each episode, but we're sticking to our four favorites that we'd like to discuss and going with it. Uh, the first one for this episode, Parcel Tongue. We've talked about this a little bit already, but this obviously plays a big role in book two. You know, saving Justin from being attacked by a snake that Malfoy sends out the end of his wand. Uh, but of course, he's seen as evil by everyone who witnessed this and is claimed to be the, the heir of Slytherin and everybody's afraid of him the entire time when, honestly, he was just trying to help out by telling the snake to leave him alone but alas uh, also throughout the book uh, he's hearing the basilisk around the school as it's slithering through the pipes this is what allows hermione to figure out that the monster of sil- slat <laughs> can't talk that the monster of salazar slytherin is a giant snake he uses parcel tongue to open the Chamber of Secrets and save Ginny and everyone else from a teenage Tom Riddle coming back. It's also how he understands the gaunt memory in book six, how he opens the locket horcrux in book seven, how Ron somehow also mimics his, uh, sl- uh what, what would you call that, hissing? <laughs> uh, to reopen the Chamber of Secrets to go get the Basilisk Fangs in order to uh, try to destroy, well, they do destroy the Hufflepuff Cup horcrux with it, uh, they try to kill the diadem and the snake with those basilisk fangs, although those don't quite go as planned. But ultimately what I'm saying is Parcel Tongue is a big deal throughout the series, and it's a big deal that Harry can talk to snakes. The second thing that we wanted to foreshadow is the dream about the flying motorcycle that he talks about in the car on the way to the zoo. Naturally, the Dursleys get super mad about this, as you would any time a child has a dream, uh, and they yell at him about how motorcycles don't fly, and he's like, of course they don't, I'm not an idiot, it was just a dream. But this, as we know, upon a reread of the books, and even even if you're reading the first time, you draw this correlation, so uh, maybe we're not that special just because we're reading this for the second third fourth twelfth eighteenth twenty fourth time how many times have you reread the series let's be honest this is a safe space but this is his brain remembering flashes of the night that he was dropped off at the dursleys by hagrid right after his parents were murdered that's the green light part of the dream it's also the first clue that we get that harry's dreams are going to be a vessel of information not only for harry but also to us as readers throughout the series. It does not do to dwell on dreams, unless, of course, they allow you to save your best friend's dad from a snake attack. Foreshadow number three, the strangers recognizing him. This is kind of just a a small snippet of exposition, a, a little bit of information of Harry just thinking back on things that have happened to him as a kid growing up. A little, a little nudge that we get to, hey, this kid is special. And that's exactly what it, it, it serves as a foreshadow. Like, it's literally the whole purpose of putting this into the chapter is for foreshadowing. It's the first hint that Harry Potter is actually 
famous within the wizarding world. And when he gets to the wizarding world, he's going to have this non-stop. Good and bad. From savior to villain. From champion to punching bag. From chosen one to undesirable number one and beyond. Everyone stares at the boy who lived in that lightning bolt scar on his forehead. He's in the history books before he hits puberty, for heaven's sake. Foreshadow number four. The wish for an unknown relative to come take him away. Oh, how close this wish is to being true. And by the way, hasn't everyone, maybe maybe it says a lot about the way that you grew up, um, perhaps more fiscally than anything else. But I imagine there, just about everybody has had this thought, unless they grew up just incredibly wealthy. I wonder if I have a rich uncle or a rich aunt or a rich grandparent somewhere that is just going to leave me some inheritance that I have no idea about, but it's just going to make me rich and I'll never have to, like, you know, work for a living. Doesn't every kid have this thought? <laughs> Maybe not to the extremes that Harry is having or for the same reasons that Harry is having these thoughts, because Harry's got it rough. But he's not nearly as far off as the rest of us are, uh, to be honest. You know, we're about to run into Hagrid, who's going to become in some ways a father figure, some might say. Uh, ultimately, it's more of a big brother or a, or a crazy uncle figure in his life. But he's about to bust down the door, throw Harry's whole life for a loop, Tell him that he's a famous wizard with a vault full of gold and a destiny ahead. Also, you're going to have to murder a serial killer before your 18th birthday. No pressure. That concludes our four foreshadow moments from Chapter 2 of Sorcerer's Stone, The Vanishing Glass, leading us into our Game of Inches. A Game of Inches. The Game of Inches. So what could have been different in this chapter? What's one thing? that could have easily been changed to have a massive impact on the story as a whole. That's the point of the game of inches. In sports, you know, an inch either way could mean victory or defeat. The same is true for the Harry Potter series. One decision here or there throughout all of these, I don't know, thousand chapters, however many are in these seven book series, if one small tweak goes differently than what was originally written, it could have a ripple effect and change the entire outcome of the story in the end, and it could mean victory or defeat for the good guys in the wizarding world. So today in this episode, uh, as we look back at chapter two, The Vanishing Glass from Sorcerer's Stone, what if Harry doesn't engage the snake in a conversation at the zoo at all? What if, you know, the banging on the glass from Vernon and the, you know, kids, Piers and Dudley getting bored and going away to go raise hell somewhere else. What if Harry just stands there and just watches the snake and when it starts nodding to him, you know, sensing that this is a, a magical person who can actually communicate with me because that appears to be the way that the conversation actually takes place is the, the snake is kind of stirred awake and looks at Harry and starts to interact with him with gestures, nodding his head and such. And Harry takes this to expound upon it into a conversation with the snake. What if he saw that and just got freaked out and like ran away? You know, like normal 11-year-old 
children would do if a snake was looking at them in their eyes, nodding. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, without this conversation, he wouldn't be in trouble now at the end of the chapter. But would he ever actually know that he has this gift of talking to snakes at all? In our, you know, in our text, as it's written, this is the only situation in which he has throughout his childhood before book two, where he has the opportunity to talk to a snake and actually does it. So if this one doesn't happen, do we somehow get a shoehorned gardener snake when he's, you know, planting or weeding Petunia's garden as she's throwing frying pans at his head and the snake goes, hey, tough break, man. Is that is that how he, he ends up learning it? Or does he just not know that he can talk to snakes? If that's the case, how does that impact the Chamber of Secrets plot in book two? He doesn't save Justin from having his face eaten off. He doesn't have the whole school thinking he's a dark wizard who opened the Chamber of Secrets in order to try to kill muggle-born kids. He may hear the voice in the pipes, but without the parcel tongue piece of the puzzle, does Hermione ever think of the monster as being a snake? Or does everybody just think that Harry is crazy because he's hearing voices and there's absolutely no foundation to build upon for Harry to have any other language that he could be hearing that other people wouldn't be hearing and understanding? Although if he's hearing this voice, this is, this is just something. We'll talk about this in book two, I think. But if he's hearing a voice clear, wouldn't they at least be hearing the hissing? I don't know. Anyways, without that piece, could they have ever found the entrance to the chamber? Could they have opened the chamber? And without all of that, how would they open the locket Horcrux later on down the road? How would Ron know what to imitate and mimic to get the Basilisk fangs in order to kill the Hufflepuff Cups Horcrux? Would there even be fangs down there to get, or would it still be a live basilisk and a dead Ginny down there? Would it just be her corpse and skeleton instead of the snake's skeleton? Ew. Who does Mar- Harry, uh, who does Harry marry if, uh, Ginny's in the chamber? Is this where we actually get the story of Harry and Hermione together, or does this go the complete other way and go maybe Harry Draco. I know there's going to be people on either side of that hypothetical fence. But without the odd impulse at the zoo as an 11-year-old boy who just had a snake stare into their eyes and start making gestures as if it understands that we can communicate to each other. Let's have a conversation. And as an 11-year-old kid, he's like, sure, snake. What's going on, man? How's your day? Tell me about your family. Tell me about what it's like living behind that glass. Oh, it sucks? Yeah, it sucks in a broom cupboard too. But without that, it has a ripple effect. Not only on the next book, but on the entire series. Because as we mentioned in our foreshadow segment, Parseltongue becomes very, very important for Harry in defeating Voldemort. And without this conversation with the snake in chapter 2 of book 1 does he know he can do this and does it play out the same way in the end i don't know but it's fun to think about we don't have that story we have this one with that let's give away some meaningless awards 
So on each episode of the Belated Binge Podcast, we're going to give away some meaningless awards to standout characters, both good and bad, from the chapter that we're reviewing. Today, we're going to start with our game ball. The game ball. The game ball is the episode's MVP, the character most worthy of praise from the chapter that we just read. And this week, I don't think we have literally any other options. I guess we could have a, 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 uh, what do they, what do they call that? Uh, man, I can't, I I can't think, I can't talk. I can't get, sorry, I can't get the words out. Everything's just getting choked up and, uh, and stuck in, in my throat and in the back of my head. Uh, honorable mention. That's what I was going for. Honorable mention. We could say an honorable mention to the snake, you know, because it does snake stuff. Uh, but no, this the game ball for this episode is going to Harry. For all the reasons that we've talked about in this episode already. Primarily, his ability to be empathetic to other people and to other living beings. Despite growing up in conditions that could easily mold a cynical, defiant, angry, depressed, and complete and utter asshole. And no one would blame him. Yet... Our protagonist in this story keeps a positive outlook and remains empathetic and caring for others. And for that alone, Harry deserves much, much more than the game ball. But here's here's what we can do for you, bud. Red card. Next is the red card award. And that goes to the character who sucked the most and who we wish we could award a red card like in soccer and just kick him out of the game or for non-Americans football. For this episode, I'm I'm remiss. Like it could easily go to the Dursleys. But for this particular chapter, I truly believe that the person most uh, most worthy of a red card is Piers. If he hadn't ratted Harry out to the Dursleys for talking to the snake, it may have only been a strange thing that nobody understood or knew what happened that the Dursleys tried to blame Harry for, but they couldn't pin it on him. You know, they didn't know that he had anything to do with it. But when he opens his narc mouth and tells them that Harry was talking to that snake before all hell broke loose in the zoo, Harry ends up locked away in his cupboard for a long time. And it's Piers' fault. Fumble. So finally, that leads us into the Fumble Award, which goes to the areas of the chapter that simply fell a little flat and sort of dropped the ball, uh, especially upon a reread. What didn't make sense? What made you think WTF? And you could say that a lot about the Dursleys, about every single thing that they did in this chapter. Present counting nonsense, talking about Harry like an infestation rather than a human being, trying to stifle any curiosity that he could possibly have throughout his entire childhood, trying to make sure he doesn't find joy in ice cream or life. But that's just the family that was built for the story to be awful. This segment is about the things that don't make sense within the story or for the wider series. With that in mind, it's the snake talking scene we just talked about and we mentioned this briefly earlier, but this is setting the stage for Harry to be a parcel mouth. 
meaning he speaks to snakes. And not just that he speaks to them as if I speak to you, he does so in a way that they understand him. In short, he's hissing. It's established that he doesn't know or realize he's not just talking like normal speaking English as a person, but that causes such an uprising in the second book when students see him doing it. They freak out and think he's the heir of Slytherin because he's hissing at a snake. In this chapter, he has a quick little chat with a snake and some cool magic stuff happens and in passing, our red card Piers says Harry was talking to it, weren't you Harry? Like we mentioned earlier, wouldn't Piers be seeing him hissing at a snake and the snake actually responding back? Wouldn't he be freaked out and make a huge scene about that? We're supposed to believe that a school full of wizards and witches that do magic on a daily basis are in complete shock and completely shook when they see him doing it. But some muggle kid is like, oh, cool, they're having a legit snake language conversation over there and that seems totally normal. Some reason a southern-ish accent rather than a British one, but you get the point. It just feels like the author kind of had the idea about him speaking to snakes probably fleshed out pretty good for its impact on the story, but maybe not the actual logistics of the hissing sounds coming out of Harry's mouth at this point when writing the story, because that part never made a ton of sense to me. Piers would have nightmares, and he would have been freaking out at the zoo to see this take place in the way that we're meant to believe that it does and it just for me it just it doesn't hook up with that we've reached this episode uh the we've reached the end of this episode of belated binge and our award segment so shout out to our producer jack who we work like a dog remember to follow and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts leave us a review please and if you enjoy the show please give it five stars that's how people are going to find us and hopefully also enjoy the show Uh, you can also become a patron over on patreon with that you get early access to our episodes uh, the videos that we post and also exclusive content that we do patron only Uh, and we're also on social media at belated binge on twitter facebook and instagram finally our show segments are also available on youtube maybe that's how you're watching now hi mom Otherwise, for our next episode, we're going to ta- we're going to tackle chapters 3 and 4, The Letters from No One and Keeper of the Keys from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. If you're reading along, we'll talk to you next week right here on the Belated Binge podcast. It's time to disarm your reluctancy and explain how you can support this podcast. Belated Binge is a fully independent production. I read the books, write the script, record the episode, edit the recording, pick and produce the sounds, manage the content schedule, manage social media, promote the podcast, and feed producer Jack. 
any costs from equipment to software to website development, marketing, any of that comes out of my pocket. And despite how many times I've been told we look alike, I'm no Harry Potter. No half giant has ever taken me to a bank full of cash and said, hey, you're rich. Having a podcast takes a lot and it's not easy. So your support is literally the only thing that keeps the show going. And there are a few key ways you can support the podcast. First, word of mouth is absolutely huge. If you enjoy the show, please tell every one of your Potterhead friends to give it a shot. Also, many of the pod players now support a rating and review function. Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, Podchaser, just to name a few. And it takes about four seconds to leave a five-star rating on the app. This can be greatly impactful. If you have more than four seconds and the app that you're using supports written reviews, that's even better. Think about how reliant we are on reviews. Whether you're buying something new or deciding what book to read next, we're always looking at ratings and reviews to weigh into our decision. Podcasts are no different, and your positive review could be the difference in someone discovering the show and deciding to give it a chance. Another great way to support the show is engaging in the conversation yourself. Whether it be answering the specific questions I pose during the show or on social media, maybe you just have a theory of your own or you want to leave some feedback. I'd love to hear from you and maybe even share it on the podcast. You can submit your thoughts by leaving a voicemail on the website, belatedbinge.com. Just click the little leave a voicemail icon on the page that you visit. If you don't like the sound of your own voice, you can also respond in written form by using the contact form on the website, leaving comments or DMs on social media. My handle is belatedbinge across Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email belatedbinge at gmail.com. The final and perhaps most impactful form of support is to become a patron on Patreon. I've made a ton of updates to Patreon membership benefits this season and some goals to shoot for as well. There are currently six tiers available designed to fit any budget level ranging from $1 to $20 with all the bells and whistles. So benefits range from early access to ad-free versions of the show, recognition on the website, bonus episodes, patron shoutouts, show prep notes, insider participation, bingey award participation, input on show content and future benefits, a drawing for a physical gift sent from me to you and others. I've also set some growth goals that will unlock new benefits for existing tiers and maybe even adding some more stuff as we go. The first goal is to get 10 total patrons, at which point I will start a patrons discord server. However you choose to support the show, thank you. I truly appreciate it.